Good morning, everybody. We're going to be learning about a, uh, an event which really borders on history and, and our identity and our Torah, which happened one year, 100 years ago and three days. So this is, this is a very important moment in, in, in history. We're going to thank our sponsors, Mr. Suzanne Cohn, who's sponsoring Ili Nishma, her father-in-law, Mr. William Cohn, Zev Ben Eliezer Yitzchak, Hakoi Hanemetz Hashem, Nishmasai Eden. Thank you for sharing it with us. I'd like to just learn with you briefly about this really astounding mm. event which occurred 100 years ago. So we're all familiar with the outline, the Balfour Declaration, which occurred on November 2nd, was issued on November 2nd, 1970. Here we go, here's an, an example. Let's see if we can get to the Balfour Declaration itself. This is the declaration. You know, we sort of expect, you know, a drum roll, a whole ream of paper. It's one letter. One letter. Dear, dear Lord Rothschild, double-spaced. I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government. There was a king at the time. And the following declaration of sympathy with the Jewish Zionist aspirations, which is submitted to and approved by the cabinet. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home. That's a very important word. Of a national home um, <coughs> for the Jewish people. And will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration of knowledge to, uh, to the Zionist Federation. This is the, is the Balfour Declaration. Essentially it is England, Lord Balfour, who was in fact the previous Prime Minister, not previous, but he was an original Prime Minister, his term ending in 1906, now in the Foreign Office, representing the government of England, representing His Majesty the King, now issuing this document, essentially recognizing not just the right, but also the willingness to facilitate this. Well, of course, it's hedging at the end, with the two hedgings, just at the end, just to be clear, is right now Jews constitute 3% of that particular vast area called um, the Palestine area of the Ottoman Empire. And number two is, so it's not going to affect the other people to a certain degree. That's a bit of a hazy statement. And number two is the concern about worldwide Jewry suffering because of this, anti-Semitism rising because of this. So therefore, he made those two declarations um, as part of this plan. Now, this is, this is a, a very a strange, it's a very strange thing to say for numerous reasons. Just let's, let's appreciate this for a second. Does Britain actually have control of Palestine? The answer is no. The answer is no. We're in a 1917. Right now, we're in the middle of World War I, just to appreciate this. In fact, we're on the cusp, America is on the cusp of entering the war. We're talking about the Triple Entente, Britain, France, and Russia fighting. We're talking about the central powers, Austria-Hungary, Germany, trench warfare, and the, fight going, uh, the, the war going across the world. At this point in time, there has been a battle in October for the, with the British and Australian troops, the Battle of Beersheba, which conquer the area, this lower area, the southern regions of Palestine. But at this point in time, the war hasn't finished yet. They don't, the outcome of the war is still in the air. And number two is, Britain at this point in time happens to be one of three at least allies. I mean, they, they can't make a unilateral decision about where this land's going to go over here. They were fighting with allies. The whole thing is, is, is quite a remarkable, remarkable notion in the first place. In fact, 
Studying a little bit of history, in 1916, the years before, the year beforehand, two of the Allies, France and Britain, had already drawn up the Picard-Sykes plan. So these were two representatives from France and from Britain who divided up a, a division plan of the Middle East. Very simple, you know, not considering the native populations. They just pulled out, you know, this was a negotiation. So France really had interests in the Levant and the Syria area. And England had more interest in the lower area. And because Palestine itself, the Palestine area of the Ottoman Empire, the division of the Ottoman Empire being one of the great causes of the Great War itself, because everybody had their eyes on this empire which was falling apart, this is exactly what they wanted. So uh, the lower area, Brit Britain and, um, and, and, and France both had their, their eyes on. And so therefore there was this debate. And the way they negotiated it was that in fact there would be, France would get a pretty large section of it. There would be on the international zone, um, on the lower section. It wasn't so simple. Meaning to say this Balfour Declaration came out against this particular plan of, of division, which gave Britain more space than they actually had in this original, the original plan. So this is, we need to consider it historically speaking. There happens to be a lot of very fascinating history. And by the way, it just is interesting to notice Kurdi Kurdistan which still is waiting, right, still, uh, still under referendum, right? It's a second, it is interesting to me as a side note that if people are really, really, if people really, really care about nationals having their own, inter uh, their own territory, that doesn't sound like it's everybody's interest across the board. Meaning, when Iran talks about the Zionist occupation, they're not worried about the Syrian and Turkish occupation of Kurdistan. There are different nationals that, that matter differently in, in, in world history. But nonetheless, so this, that was the plan. So what happened? During these years, there are two figures who were very influential in, um, in English politics. This is Dr. Chaim Weizmann, who was in fact a um, biochemist who arrived in, I believe, 1904 to England, well-distinguished individual, one of the proponents of the Zionist movement, and of course, um, Nahum Sokolov. Nachum Sokolo today, we don't remember so much. We don't, there's, there's Sokolo streets in Israel. There's, uh, there's a kibbutz named after him. But we don't have so much information on him. These two individuals are the people who started speaking to the powers that be, speak to the, to the British advisors. And, and after much um, communication, they, the British realized, it was interesting, that Mr. Sykes himself, who was the proponent of that plan, whether he realized altruistically the Zionist ideal was something which he believed in, or whether he believed it would be something which could advance the British cause in getting more land in the Palestine area, whichever way there's a debate as to how, for how much, how altruistically motivated he was, really actually um, took full, fully adopted this cause. And um, the problem was that Britain couldn't do anything without France or America. They said they, they weren't able to issue such a thing. So, so in fact, Mr. Sokolow took a trip to France and gained in writing an acceptance to the forthcoming Brian Balfour Declaration had, a, f uh, had a, a, a milestone meeting with Pope Benedict XIV, who was now in, uh, in Rome in the middle of that trip. And for the first time, the Pope actually gave blessing to the notion of a homeland. This, this, this is what was happening in the years 1960, 1970, leading up to the Balfour Declaration. Um, at this point in time, um, Louis Brandeis, who, was in, who, had been, who had come into office, had the ear of Woodrow Wilson, who gave a... a uh, um, who gave a, a non-public affirmation of the forthcoming Balfour Declaration, and that was why the Balfour Declaration was actually to, uh, able to happen politically. Meaning to say, it was with the permission of those other powers, but of course it wasn't until 1920, after the war had finished, after the conquest had been happened, that then the fan, uh, there was the, San, the conference in San Remo, where the powers came together, where France, Britain, England, Japan, and Italy came together 
uh, for a conference in which they wanted to actually legalize this, uh, that, that declaration, which that by then, ha at this point in time, is now could actually be made because Britain actually controlled this. And that was when the British Mandate of Palestine was created in response to or in the continuation of the Balfour Declaration. It is interesting to note that it was not smooth at any point in time. France tried to back out in 1919 because uh, uh, um, so there was uh, there was a actually you know there, there was a lot of complications, but nonetheless. It, it, I mean, it came, came to being in the, in the San Remo Conference, and of course, later on in the League of Nations, uh, the League of Nations uh, confirmed this later on in 1922. So this is a really fascinating time in history, and I, I, really the perspective that we need to take on this is, you know, it's wonderful, it's, it's a blessing. Um, well, how do we react to that? I mean, like, well, what, is, what is our role, essentially, in looking at that, in looking at something that happens, um, that happens um, under the following auspices? The first, the first place to look is, is how does Gula itself arrive? You know, people were, you know, had shine in their eyes. They, they were looking towards this. This is the moment of ultimate redemption. How does Gula actually happen? So in perhaps one of the famous, most famous uh, Gomorrahs that most people know, quoting the Pasuk in Yeshayahu, Yeshayahu says in Perak, Samach HaKotoni that the smallest one will be to a chieftain, and the, the, the small nation will be to a great nation. I'll bring it fast. I'll bring it at its time speedily. Oxymoron, speedily at its time. How does that work? The more famously says in Sanhedrin, quoting Rabbi Alexandria and the Nebi Yeshua. So you know how Gula comes? If we have the schus, if we really merit it, yes, then it comes at the right time. Then it comes early. If we don't have the schus, then there's, an, there's, a, there's a deadline. And that deadline will come, deadline 6,000 years. Where we are on that, historically speaking, is, um, is a matter of fascinating debate. But nonetheless, um, there, there seems to be two modes of how Gula comes. This is, this is the famous part. Now, the only thing we need to think about carefully when we're looking at this Gemara over here is, who is doing the Achishena? Right, like, let, let, let's, let's think about this for a second. Who is doing the Achishena? In this, in this the Gemara or the Pasuk in Yeshua is describing it is, who's doing it? Hashem, right? It doesn't sound like we're doing it. If we're, our, our role in this whole equation is creating the schus, the merit, that Hashem should be mechish, the Yeshua. So Hashem should speed along the, that, 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 um, that redemption. So where does that line, you know, where do you draw the line between accruing schus and bringing it forward, right? Meaning, you know, how much, how much politi political, you know, meetings, how many, how many uh, you know, lobbies do we, need to, do we need to say are part of the, you know, the schus? And how much is the Achishena? Where's, where's, where's Hashem's part in this? It sounds, at this point in time, we could say we should really be passive in terms of the political, military front, and maybe only in the spiritual front we're doing something. Right? The, the, there's a lot of space over here. So what is our existence as, as, as a godless Jew? This, for this, we need to return to a, a Gomorrah, which relates to a Pasuk in Shir Hashirim. The Pasuk in Shir Hashirim describes for us I would say, like, once, once we absorb this, it's, like it's, a, it's almost a very tragic way to think about history. But it is a true way to think about history that the Gemara <laughs> describes. The, the Pasuk in Shira Sherem says, You know, daughters of, of Jerusalem, I have sworn to you today, says God, <coughs> You should not wake up the love until the time of desire has arrived. You should not wake up the love until the time of desire has arrived. What does it mean, wake up the love? Gomorrah is pretty clear about this in Ksubos. Famous Gomorrah says, Rabbi Yehuda quotes this. We're going to start from over here. We're going to start from Rebbe Zera. Rebbe Zera, humi boile lechad Rebbe Yossi, Rebbe Chanena. Doma, gimel shvois halalu lama. 
There were three oaths that Hashem swore to us, made us swear as we went into exile. Achas shloyalu Yisrael b'choyma. One oath is that we should not go up b'choyma. literally means like b'choyma literally means a wall in power together. Number two is that we shouldn't rebel against the nations of the world. And the third one And the third one is that Hashem turned to the nations of the world and said, in a certain sense, you're the steward of my nation throughout all of history and make sure don't, don't overdo it. This is what we have, uh, um, as a, what's famously known as the three oaths, the Gimel, the Shalosh Shavuos which has been the topic of not just discussion, but books, svarim, volumes have been written about this particular Gomorrah. Because ultimately what's that question over here is, what is our Jewish identity in, in exile? How, to, how, how active are we supposed to be? Are we supposed to ascend in the ranks of society? Are we supposed to change political agenda? Or are we supposed to remain simply at the bequest or at the, at the will of the government that we're under? This is, this is the question that, that, that this Gomorrah raises. And it seems pretty clear from the simple reading of this Gomorrah is, is that we don't have, we're not supposed to have access to the land of Israel until, until it's, uh, there isn't actually a, an until in this Gomorrah. It sounds like it shouldn't be our role. Reading, going back to the Gomorrah, Gomorrah about in Sanhedrin, when is, when is Geula come? Hachishan, Hashem says, you know what? I'll, I'll bring it along. I'll, I'll sort it out. You wait. You do your thing. What's your thing? Stay put. Work, work within the systems that you've been given. Work within the countries that you've been given. And, um, and, and, and we'll take it from there. Now, are there any ways around this? Meaning to say, like, is there, are there limitations to this? Like, how, 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 how extreme is this? How far does this reach? Not so simple, right? Okay, so one of the things, so one of the questions that, 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 that the, the Poiskim ask about this is, as, um, as Dr. Yeager is pointing out, is, is this a package deal? So, meaning to say, if it's a package deal, then it might be bilateral. So, therefore, what happens if, let's say, you know, we go to the 1400s, and we read about what the what uh, about Otto de Fe. Let's let's read about Holocaust and say, well, you know, that sounds a little bit like Yoser Midai. That sounds a little bit like what's happened when we read about the Crusades. We, is that is that what God envisioned? You know, when when he said when he said uh, that that Umar should not over oppress us. It sounds like that part of the deal has been off for a very long time. And the question is, is, so does that affect the first part of the, of the shor? Are those three shores interdependent? Another question we could ask ourselves as well is, is how, how much is Choyma? What does Choyma mean? Does the Choyma mean to say militarily? What about diplomatically? Is that, is that, is that also Choyma? Like, is that forceful by forcing, you know, Chaim Weizmann and, uh, and Nachum Sokolov? Is, is there, are the diplomatic efforts part of the Choyma as well? How far does it go? What happens if it's segments of the Jewish population? It's not all together. What happens if it's in, in a few stages of Aliyah? How, how, how far reaching is this Gomorrah? Barbara. Good question. I'm I'm not not particularly sure. It sounds like it's in the context. Um, it sounds like it's in the context of Israel finding independence. Meaning to say, the the topic over here is not about the we'll call it the the nationalism or the of that particular country. It's about really about Israel's independence. So we're not supposed to break free and create sovereignty. That's what it sounds like. Um, so this, this, that's, that's really the, the groundwork of the debate. So what I want to do is, is, that, is, um, is to say, well, you know, it's very hard to choreograph 
from that Gemara exactly what should happen. But you know what we can do? Instead of that, we can say, well, what did happen? So let's look at history and let's look at um, attempts in Jewish history where Jews very ideologically decided, yes, we want to do this. We need Geula. We want to bring it forward. We're going to take the next active steps and how successful and unsuccessful they are. I'm just taking four examples just before we get to this. Four, four precedents in, in, in history and um, these will give us just a little, maybe a little bit of the wherewithal to have, continue the conversation as we get to the 1917s. We're going to follow the Ma'apilim, Cyrus, the Chashwana, and Bar Kokhba. Those are the four examples we're going to follow. <coughs> so the, the first one, of course, you know, is a doomed example um, of the Ma'apilim. The Ma'apilim are, uh, are, of course, this group of people who are so distraught with the outcome of what happened uh, with the spies. The spies come back, they give the bad, the, the bad word about the land of Israel. Hashem says, that's it, and the book is closed. You're going to sp- you're go- this generation is going to die. In the desert, you're not going to enter Israel. The next generation will enter. And the people were were in mourning. Now they, they were in mourning the night before because they thought that they were going to the land of Israel. But nonetheless, they realized the impact and the gravity of this decision. So what did they do? <laughs> They say, no, we, we sinned. We did the wrong thing, but we're going to do it. We're going to charge in. We're going to go into the land of Israel. We're going to take over. Now's not the time. Don't go. Don't go. You'll be destroyed. And in fact, that's what happens. The, and the, and the, the Psalm talks about how they presumed they went up to the land and they, Hashem was not with them. The Aaron was not with them. Moshe was not with them. And they were slaughtered on the on the on the southern on the southern border of Israel. Amalek and the Knani smote them in a place called Chorma, named after that destruction. So you know, there, there's a certain time where we, we want, we wish, we will, we we aspire to to do what we feel is the right thing. We want to enter the land of Israel. We do it forcefully, but God says this is not the right time, and it ends in destruction. Mm-hmm. Episode number one. <laughs> Episode number two. We move many many centuries later into Tanakh into. Uh, what is really a, a, a fascinating stage in history because what's happened over here is that there's been the, the rise of this Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire has been violent and it, it was an extremely fast rise conquering the whole near, um, near and uh, Middle East um, and their policies are pretty violent. They destroy every nation, <gasps> exile every nation that they come across. But as, 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 as fast as it ascends, it descends equally as fast and is conquered by the much more organized, much more slow-moving um, Persian Empire, which lasts much longer than it. And under one of the, per, the Persian emperors, Cyrus the Great, this picture is there on the right, this is how the book of Ezra actually begins. Let's see if we can get into it. Oh, no, we can't get into the text as easily. Um, I apologize. But just, just, to, just to get a sense of this, listen to, the, listen to the way that Tanakh describes this. And I think that if only we could read the newspaper with these type of eyes, meaning like let, let, if, if we could just uh, be able to see what uh, the, the newspaper through these the, uh, through this lens. I apologize, I can't get any closer right now. Just to get the first pasuk, Vishnasachas lekoresh melech pras. In the first year of Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, lachalois tevar Hashem mipir yirmiyahu. At the time when the end of Yirmiyahu's prophecy was coming into effect, Hashem inspired Cyrus the Great. Cyrus was not a Jew. Cyrus was a Persian emperor. Cyrus the Great was inspired by God and he wrote the following letter. So saith 
Cyrus of, of Persia. God gave me the entire world. And by the way, he, he pretty much means that. You know what I'm saying? Like when we talk about Achashverosh, wherever we, where we, we put him in the timeline in relationship to Koresh. But Achashverosh, um, you know, we talk about 127 states. We talk about from India, you know, well into, into, the, into Europe. So, you know, Cyrus is pretty, you know, pretty on target by saying, you know, God gave me the whole world. And he says, and the reason why I have it is to, to, to establish the house of God in Jerusalem. And he goes on and he talks about take the gold, take the vessels, take everything you have and go back. Go to the land of Israel. Wow. You know, we have to ask ourselves, you know, did he really say that in the name of God? You know what I mean? Like to say, was that us saying we know that he said it, meaning we know that Hashem inspired him, or that he felt that he was inspired by God, right? Um, but nonetheless, this is what he does. And he sends out this mandate, we'll call this the Cyrus Declaration. And the Cyrus Declaration was a very successful de declaration. But the question is, what happened? What happened afterwards? So if you go into the later Prokim in, your, in, in, in Ezra, there's a long list of people who come up and listen to the, listen to the sum total people who, who respond to this declaration. An unbelievable 42,303 score. Now, folks, we don't have to do a census for Jewry in, in Persia and, and, and Babylon at the time to realize that 42,000 is a drop in the bucket. Okay, to read, it means to say, here is Cyrus the Great, and he's set up this vassal state, and it's going to be governed by Jews, and he sends up, you know, he sends up the spiritual leader, and he sends up the governor, right? So at first it was, you know, before his time it was Zerubbabel, and Yeshua Kohen Gadol. Now this point in time it's going to be Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra's the sofer, the scribe, and Nehemiah's going to be the, the governor. He was a very high politically connect, uh, connected Jew in the Persian court. He was the drinks master of, um, of, of, the, of the emperor. Nonetheless, you know, in the end of the day, what, <laughs> the response is pitiful. And in fact, the Gemara comments on this. The Gemara says, well, you know what? The Gemara says the following. Um, here we go. It says, You know, until you come up the nation of Hashem, until you can acquire this nation. The Gemara says, The first time we came to Israel. We could have had the same degree of miracles as we entered or we re-entered the land at the times of Ezra, as Ezra was sent by Koresh, but we didn't have the schus, that sin overtook us. What sin overtook us? The Gemara in Yuma, Yuma says, to, uh, uh, over here, also quoting Shir Hashim, a little late in Shir Hashim. If it is a wall, we'll build on it a beautiful, a beautiful crown of silver. But if it's only a door, then we'll, be, then we'll make a luach eres, we'll make a cedar, a cedar board on it. If you're to make yourself like a wall and ascended all together in the times of Ezra, then if you would be like silver. There's no, there's no uh, rot that controls it. It looked nice at the beginning, you know, as all good wood does. And then, you know, give it a few years, and that's, and that's what the wood looks like at the end. It wasn't long-lasting. It wasn't going to be long-lasting. Why? What was Shagar Machet according to the Gemara in Yuma? Because we, do, we didn't, you know, you know, we were quite happy with our estates in, in Babylon. You know, Shushan was just a fantastic. The municipalities were good. The taxes were easy. Jobs were fine. Everything was good. So why did we need to go up to Israel? We missed the boat. So here you see something uh, in, in the opposite side. You know, the Ma'apilim wanted to go up, and it was the wrong time. These are the folks who should have got up and it was the right time. They missed going up and it became the wrong time. 
because they didn't take advantage of it. When we read, uh, by the way, if we read Ezra and Nehemiah and Chagah, Zechariah, Melachi, which are all in the same, this, 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 the same bracket of Tab, I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's almost as if we're reading history now. It's, it's, it's remarkable this, the, the, how, how similar it is to now. Now, it happens to be that these two episodes, the Ma'apirim and the Koresh, are, are a little less helpful to us in certain instances because, in a certain perspective. You know why? It's because they had prophecy. So Moshe could say, uh-uh, and Ezra could say, yeah, right? Meaning to say, like, in the end of the day, we knew what was right and wrong. So the, the prophets could tell us what was right, what was wrong, so we could follow. And we'd know we're doing the right or wrong thing. Mm-hmm. What about times after prophecy, where we no longer have that to tap in, and we say, okay, so what do we do now? Well, well, well when there's nobody, now we have to think about it. We have to actually work it out. So it happens to be two, two fascinating instances. The Chashmonaim. The Chashmonaim are living in a post-prophetic era, the Second Temple. We're living in a time where now the Persians have been conquered by the Greeks. The Greeks are controlling the, the emperor. The Greek Empire turns into four, splits into four splinters. The Syrian Greeks under Antiochus are in charge of this particular area of, um, uh, of, of the Greek Empire. <laughs> and, um, and this is the Megiddo's Antiochus, which, which describes you know, the this, this story where Yochanan is, is, um, is brought in front of one of these, uh, this, uh, this fellow whose name was Nicanor. And, uh, and it, it forces him to try to bring a sacrifice of a pig on this altar. And at this point in time, Yochanan makes this, in, this proclamation. And he says, uh, he says, Don't allow me to suffer in front of this uncircumcised person. You're going to let him kill me? He's going to go to his house of worship and say, Ah, look what, look what their God does. At this moment in time, Yochanan takes the sword and he assassinates the representative of the government. And he, um, he, and this is the this is the beginning of this stage of the rebellion, where Yochanan and his sons now move into exile into the caves of the hills. And this is where the whole the, the whole the whole the whole Hanukkah episode starts. Many wars that are fought against the reprisal of Greeks and Judo Greeks um, uh, that 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 ensues after this. And you say to yourself, you know, like, well, how did he know? Meaning, like, here he is, you know, at this point in time. So shouldn't you say, okay, well, you know, no, 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 we're not doing anything passive. He says, I got to do it, right? That's not what's happening. He leads now the, one of the most successful rebellions in all of Jewish history against the powers that be. Meaning to say, he believed and he knew this was correct. The Ramam says, in fact, the reason why we celebrate Hanukkah is because the sovereignty gained by the Chashmonai, which lasted for over 200 years, included in that were many bad kings, bad, bad Jewish kings. Right, there was Herod who killed all the Chashmonaim, every single one, last one of them. It was when there, there was civil war between uh, you know, Aristobulus and Hyrcanus of the Chashmonaim dynasty. That was all included, what the Ram says, is we celebrate Hanukkah because of this. Because of that productivity to take, uh, to, to take back the land of Israel. Let's go further. We go after, we move to after, centuries later, after the destruction of the Second Temple. The years 130 to 135, where there is, of course, the famous Bar Kokhba rebellion. And the Bar Kokhba rebellion wasn't just a military rebellion. In fact, as the Rabbim tells us, as the Gemara Yerushalmi describes, in the end of the day, <coughs> Rabbi Akiva believed in this. Rabbi Akiva really believed this had the potential to be the Messiah. This was the potential to be Achishena in a certain sense. You know, Achishena, if we have the Schus, we can get there. Bar Kokhba did not work out so well. He killed the sages. He was not a, he, he was in fact, he did not in the end of the day live up to the signs that he, that he had. But nonetheless, this could have been, 
there was a potential of it, of, of it having been something which could have, could have been a success. And we think, and unfortunately, throughout the rest of Jewish history, with few and far in between exceptions, there was very little opportunities ever to return, to ever to exercise any sovereignty or military or diplomatic sovereignty until actually very recently. We, with, um, just for the sake of time, what we're going to do is we're going to skip the development of, you know, the historical development of Zionism throughout the 19th century and the different groups within the Zionism because there's a fascinating, it in and of itself is just a, a, a discussion about who supported, didn't support, did you become part of it, the social dynamics of Zionism, Zionist Congress, Theodore Herzl, we return to the Balfour Declaration itself with a short, a short background. In this context, the Balfour Declaration is different to Zionism, just to appreciate this for a second. Just to appreciate this. There's one thing when a Zionist group comes to a city and says, we're going to all go to Israel, we're going to make Aliyah, we're going to learn Hebrew, we're going to now throw anti-Semitism as well as possible, we're going to recognition, we're going to find our own sovereign state. You know, so there was a lot of debate, you know, do we accept that, do we not accept that? The, the, the tone of this is, at best, ap apathy to religion, at worst, anti-religion. So, so, you know, there, there's a lot of debate. A lot of, uh, the predominant orthodox view was against Zionism. You know, just, just to, be, to be clear, there was, of course, religious Zionists, but the predominant, if you were to speak to most Hasidic communities and most, most communities in the yeshiva world, they were not in support of Zionism, certainly because of the leadership of Zionism. But what happened when the Balfour Declaration happened? The Balfour Declaration is a little different. The Balfour Declaration is, is, is different because this is now actually somebody from the outside saying, hey, you're right. This sounds almost like it's that Cyrus moment for me, like, yeah, where, where it sounds like God is you know, putting his hand into the puppet of this leader now and doing something. So how do you react to that? How do you react to that? How, how, how do we look, to, uh, look at that? What I want to do is I want to take the, the next few minutes to look at three types of responses which, which inform us today. Negative, positive, and more nuanced. And within each, three characters. <coughs> that's, the, 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 that's, our, that's our movement here. In the negative side of things, so um, the, the people who are more concerned about this, an example, of course, would be the, the Satma Rebbe, um, Rav Yoel Tazabon, who later on wrote a book called the Shalosh, uh, called Yoel Moshe, and it was the first of the three sections of that book is called, is called the Shalosh Shavuos, in which he, he reestablishes the, uh, firmly our role as, as, as being an exiled Jew and not, um, um, and not fighting against the powers that be around us. I want to just also be, be fair, you know, sometimes people will, will, will put up the Satma Rebbe as a foil, you know, as a straw man they want to knock down. I, I think it would really, it really um, would, would do us intellectual honesty to read Vayoel Moshe before, before dismissing uh, what he says. Vayoel Moshe is a, a complex and in-depth halachic work. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not simply demagoguery, you know, where sometimes people would put out there. The, the Rav Yol Talabam was, was, was a God Shabik Dailem. He was an a, a incredibly huge spiritual leader. So, you know, we, we may disagree with the perspective, but just to appreciate that this wasn't, it wasn't simply a stamping the foot and saying, this is what I believe. It was a much more bigger perspective. Here's what he says, um, 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 I won't say this, we could go back over here. This is what he says uh, um, over here in his, in his book, Divrei Yoel and Tori. He says, he says the following. <coughs> Why is that we didn't reach these things? Why was it that it didn't succeed so well in the times of the Second Temple? Because it was built under Persian rule. It's true. Koresh was a great man. So he was a good Jew-loving man. And by the way, he issued stoppings of the building of the base of Middash later on. Our Tachshastah didn't work out so easily. There were people who didn't like us building then as well. 
right? But nonetheless, he was a good man. Chagas Zechariah Melochi talked about it. Simple, simply stated. The reason the second base of Mikdash was not Mashiach wasn't because we didn't, we didn't come up together. It was because we cannot have, the, 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 the model of Gula is not via other people. The model of Gula is not via Cyrus. The model of Gula is HaKadosh Baruch comes in, splits the Persian Empire into two, destroys all the enemies, leads Israel miraculously back into the land, and boom, Gula comes. That's the way it happens. That's all that is, that, that's the only, the only method, the only model that Gula can happen. And he goes on to, uh, to prove it. Therefore, why was it short-lived? Because it was, you have to imagine, just to appreciate this. In that base of Midrash, there was a wall, there was a mural in the base of Midrash called, called, called Shushan. It had a mural of the, the skyscape of Shushan. Think about that. Imagine the Basin Midrash being built today, you know, with the New York skyline because we, you know, like New York Jews supported the building of the Basin Midrash. What a travesty. Like, like is, that the, is that the, that's what we think about the Basin Midrash is, you know, you know, the Manhattan skyline? Like, that's what it was, says the Sadman Rebbe. Um, the Sadman Rebbe says, I'm just going to hold question for the end just for a second. In the end of the day, that's, it, it, we were, it was a, a, a lowly building. It was a lowly second temple, which is why we cried when it was made because it was with the help of the Umos Oilam. There happens to be another, another fascinating letter which was sent at this, uh, around this time. Let's see if we can get into it. No, I can't actually access it. Um, there was a statement made by Rav Yitzhak Meir Levine. Rav Yitzhak Meir Levine was a fascinating individual in, in history. He was a uh, um, son-in-law of the Gera Rebbe. And of course, the Gera Rebbe was one of the Hasidic sects which was more um, open to Zionism in general. And he was criticized deeply because of that. Um, he said, when uh, he made a statement about <coughs> the divine inspiration of Balfour when, uh, when, when proclaiming this declaration in 1917. He was actually one of the 37 people to sign the Israeli de Declaration of Independence. It's a fascinating story behind that. He was in Jerusalem. He had a broken leg. They flew him in a plane. He had his leg out of the plane. He got to the, just before Shabbos. Remember, this is the fifth, of, you know, this is, this is literally as Shabbos was coming in. You know, they didn't have the name of Hashem in the Declaration of Independence. The closest they got was to put the word Tzur, you know, the Rock of Israel. So, you know, that was, it was a big debate, and that just still, you know, if you look at the scroll of independence, we have it up in the library. Um, there is a, uh, on the wall, thanks to Mr. Aminoff, who put it up there, there's, you, know, you can see there's, there's no mention of Israel. So if you look at his signature, he says at the end of his signature, Be'ezos Hashem Yisbarach. Right, so it is there. So anyway, so it's like, <laughs> just so you should know, that way he, he got it in, you know. He was a very fast, fascinating person, you know, very formative in our goodness Israel. It's, 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 it's an abbreviation. Nonetheless, you know, a very fascinating individual. He talked about the inspiration of our Kodesh Baruch, Ashkoch Hashem, that the Balfour would happen, and in response to this, a very strong letter came out, a machon ha'yereim Yerushalayim, a a machon, a, a response, a heavy response, or or in a sense, um, uh, how would you translate? What's a good a, good, protest. a protest letter um, from the for the yereim in Yerushalayim, for those who fear in Yerushalayim against this, you know, and. Uh, and Vadai Hosa Hatsora Hatsoras Balfour Remes Mesa Shokal Yonalif Kodes are Tsena Kadosha Al Kandushon. It's quoting him. And they go on. Khalilon Bene Israel, Mamini Bene Mamini Bashem of Nivamis, but Sedek Livnois Rat, Lachanos Hatsoras Ha Balfouris Tachas Kinushal Soik Besuk Pekuda Ilah. Chazus Shalom that we should look at this as some sort of divine command, says this group of individuals. Rat Kion Tsrihim Lamin Be Pashtus Be Bias Moshiach Amiti Shiraku. It's only going to come from Hashem. Like, what are you saying? You know, like you're, what, you, you're, you're flattering these people because you think they're going to give you more power? Right? So this is in response to <laughs> I mean, the Gerarebbe's son-in-law. You know, this is, this is how, how strongly worded it was. There are other letters sent by other communities in Yerushalayim, also Haredim in Yerushalayim, who support it, but we're not going to spend time going through it because there's so much of here. The Munkach Rebbe, the Minchas Elozor, 
says the following, um, of course also very vehemently opposed, um, says, London. What is he saying? <laughs> Balfour, of course, is an acronym for Balpaor, which was the area in the desert in which Israel served Avodah Zorah called Balpaor. So what's the Minchas Elazar say? The Minchas Elazar says, again, a, 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 a master, a leader in, um, in, in Israel says, this is, this is Avodah Zorah. Following this is, you're, you're following the Pied Piper over the precipice. That's what he's saying. He says, we're never going to go back because we feel we need to have sovereignty. Right? The only way we're going to get back there is when Hashem sends Melech, Melech Mashiach, and that's how we're going to get back there. There is no other alternative. Now, again, this is the, we, we're taking a snippet out of much longer essays. Out of much, there's much. Oh, we have a descendant of the Minchilos um, Elazar. Um, in the end of the day, in the end of the day, we're, this, this is really, it's not fair to be able to just do a little snippet, but just to appreciate. What is our role in Golis? Our role in Golis is to do mitzvahs, to serve our Kodesh Baruch Hu, and wait for Hashem to bring the ultimate Gula. It's not our role to go fraternizing with politicians, to go diplomatically trying to, to, to advance the next stage. This is our role. And the degree that we'll be safe is the degree we don't force the issue. And just to appreciate this, from this camp over here, they will, they will say that it was not worth the life's loss to create the State of Israel. It was not worth all those lives because ultimately speaking, <coughs> It would have been better to remain a subsidiary nation under a foreign power and serve Hashem that way rather than to have forced this. And they would say that everything bad that goes on, every terror attack, every, um, every, um, every loss in the army is because we caused it ourselves. I mean, we put ourselves in the situation where we could have stayed in uh, Europe, we could have stayed in all these other places. Now, unfortunately, you know, we, we know, unfortunately, that 1939 to 1945 changed things. Another, uh, you know, but I, I would also add another thing. Just, uh, just, uh, just historically speaking, just as, as something to think, chew, chew on. Um, if you read a summary to Ali Khomeini's book, um, um, Ayatollah Khomeini. So he wrote a book on Israel. It's worthwhile reading because, you know, if you want to know what, what the people want to do, they usually put in their book. You know, Hitler was pretty clear about that, right? So, so you've got to read the people's books, right? So Ali Khomeini has a book about Israel. And he talks about Israel. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to nuke Israel. That's not his plan. You know what his plan is? He wants to carry on financing terror and disquiet in the, in the nation, what he calls a, a constant simmer in the land, to drive out the European non-inhabitant Jews who weren't belonging in the land of Israel, so they can go back, and that the rest of the Jews who were indigenous, because he doesn't disagree that there were Jews living there for centuries, should live in a subsidiary state to Islam. Right? As they did in Syria and Iraq and Persia and all the other places across the Muslim world. Now, I mean, you say, let them be returned to the status of Zimah, but they don't have the, they don't have the, the right to wield power over, over Islam. And so just, just to appreciate it, when, when, when you hear anybody saying something which sounds similar to Ayatollah Khomeini, that's usually a bad sign, because just, just, just to appreciate that. Meaning, if, if our attitude to Golas sounds like the same thing as Ayatollah Khomeini is saying, that, that, that's generally a red flag. So, but, but nonetheless, just to appreciate that, historically speaking, 
what's going on. What about the positive side over here? On the positive side, most famously, is the, is the letter of, of Rav uh, Merasimcha de Vince, the, the Ilui of de Vinsk. He was the contemporary of the Rogotchova, and he says the following. He says, this is, this is the most famous response to the Balfour Declaration. Um, um, he passed away, really, literally, he passed away in 1924. So in 1917, this is the end of his years, the Meshech on the Torah, the Or on the Rambam, the He says the following. Um, here we are. Here we go. He says, he talks about Rabbi Huda, who wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael, and how important it was to him. Um, he goes the following. Yeah, let's, let's just cut to the chase. Omnam, ka'eis ha'sivo ha'shkocha asheba ha'sivo sa'mamlachus ha'na'urois besan rimoi. So he's now referring to the 1920 San Remo conference. And he says, now that there's been legitimacy in the eyes of the world, there's a command, or there's a mandate, that there's going to be Israel's return to Israel. He says, what is he saying? What does he mean? Yes, it's true. For all of almost 2,000 years, we were to live as a subsidiary, as, as the lowly Jew, saying, yes, sir, no, sir. But we know what happens when the nations of the world get together and in an unprecedented action give legitimacy to a Jewish homeland, a Jewish national homeland. Then you know what? They're allowing us to do it. Therefore, the mitzvah returns al Tila, and he says, Everybody should be doing this to the best of their ability, says the, says the Meshechachma. It is pivoted. History has changed. The Shvuas are over. Wow. You have to have shoulders to be able to say that. And you say he is saying there's a limitation in the Gomorrah Ksubas, and we've reached it. That's why that's the way he looked at it. That's, that's just, just to appreciate the, the, the gravity of this. Of course, Rav Cook. Remember, most people think Rav Cook, you know, Rav Cook is the, you know, the, the ultimate. The ultimate Zionist, you know, religious Zionist, just to appreciate, you know, Rav Kook was a Talmud in Volozhin, you know, and, you know, and Rav Chaim, Rav Kook is, you know, came from the, the depths of the European system of yeshivas, he's a poisek otzah, I mean, we're not talking about somebody who was just, you know, he didn't even live to see the state of Israel, he died in the 30s, okay, so, but he was around for the, for, for, for the, for the Babel Declaration. Listen to the following, because I'm going to read over here, because it's a little less fuzzy. I'm Rimal Balfour. He quotes, this is where Balfour died. He gave a eulogy. He gave a eulogy for Balfour. Omrimal Balfour, Shehudayme Betzirasola Koresh Melech Pras B'Sha'atoy. It's as if he's like Cyrus the Great. The British Empire at this point in time, you may argue if it's at its peak or it's already on its way down, but Britain controlled at a certain point, you know, coming from the 19th century to the 20th century, more landmass than any other country occupied in the world at any time. He says, Shoya Gamhu Bal Hatsoras HaKadosh Shel Mibachem Mikoam He's even better than Koresh. He's better than Cyrus the Great, he says. Koresh is a melech kosher, Cyrus, you know, as all good politicians do, sway in the wind. Right, depending on which wind, which wind was blowing, he went in that direction. Later on, he retracted his permission. Later on, Cyrus said, well, the, 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 Shom, the people in Shomron were complaining, the Jews weren't letting them build with them, they didn't want to, and so therefore he sent a letter retracting it, and the base of Middash ground to a stop, a stop, right? In the end of the day, 
who hechmitz al yidei intrigious shall tsari Yehuda, the intrigue of those around us al yidei ha'ilmim should be vinyan abayas ha'urad ha'amvo aritzikalkel sa'yichosim shall apolitzikia harachok alon. He goes. He goes the, the following. He says, just skipping down. Aval Balfour, loy hechmitz. Balfour did not change. Who amad betzid koimitchiras his noitzutzus shel harayon agadol azeb moichoy. He stayed with the idea the whole way through. She hivrik a love mitoich hashpa niflos shel sipureinu hagadol shemegiloseinu hachezyonis ad soifoy ad nishimosoy haachona. Till his last dying day, he still believed in what he said. Al kenya zikroy baruch lanu laad. That was his hairspin for Balfour. Can you imagine? Anyway, so this, 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 is, this, this is the way Rav Kook sees it. Rav Kook, of course, in his letter, this letter was sent out two days after the Balfour Declaration, describing how he views us as HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as his galus pa'olam, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, shining his light on us in the world. Whenever had a nation ever given us permission to do this in, in all of um, Gaulus' history, and he reiterates this in another letter later on in Shvat, just uh, the same year in the Jewish calendar. Um, very unequivocally clear. Rav Moshe Yaakov Moshe Chalap. Actually, Rav Yaakov Moshe Chalap was the, one of the Talmidei Muvhak of Rav Kook, and he later on became the Rav of Shari Chesed in Yerushalayim. So whenever we walk in the, in the streets of Shari Chesed, the Rav of Shari Chesed, Rav Yaakov Moshe Chalap, his grandson, of course, is Razvulun Chalap, who was the Dean of Ritz in, um, in YU for many, many years. He's still the Dean Emeritus. You can, whenever you meet him, um, whenever you meet Rav Chalap and you ask him, you can ask him for memories for his grand grandfather, Rav Yaakov Moshe, the, the, uh, one of the geniuses, one of the great leaders of the time. And he, he is very much in favor of this Balfour Declaration. He says the following. We're not going to read it inside just for the sake of time, but he says the following in his sefer called Ma'ane Hayashua, the springs of redemption, of, of, of salvation. He says the following. It's true. You, you, want to, you want to know, well, is it going to be miraculous? Is it not going to be miraculous? Remember the Satmar Rebbe was saying, that it's, it, it, we have to look at it and that Google is going to be totally and unadulteratedly um, miraculous. So how do you deal with that? So he says, well, let's look back at Golos Mitzrayim. He says, in Golos Mitzrayim, there was a lot of ishtadlus necessary to be done till the point, till the point that Hashem stepped in. There was a lot of tefillah, there was a lot of fighting, there was a lot of working with the powers before we got to that point that suddenly it all became miraculous. <coughs> then he says an interesting thing. And he says, this is just, uh, uh, just a thought to think about. He says the Balfour Declaration itself was miraculous. You're like, what in the world was he doing? Like, wh why? You know, the Jews, the Jews constituted, there were, were, you know, 300,000 Jews in Britain at the time. But like, you know, in the end of the day, did he really need us? You know, was, was he, did he, you know, we could, there's lots of intrigue and the, what Britain's interests were and what they were trying to do, maybe the swing the Jews of Russia, and whatever, you know, all the intrigue that goes into why the Balfour Declaration was issued. It was Meshuggah. Some historians say that this was the most uh, the, the, this is the, the, historically the most unlikely, I don't know the exact logic, the most unlikely document issued in the entire 20th century. I mean, yes, yes, he, he, that is a miracle that it, was, uh, that it was issued in the first place. I mean, don't, don't say, well, we need Hashem to break through the clouds and split the earth. <coughs> what the miracle is, when he makes people do things which they should never have done. That's a miracle, says Rav Yaakov Come into the more nuanced approaches. We've seen some of the positive, uh, the positive approaches. We've seen some of the negative approaches. What about the Munyon's approach? What about the Chovetz Chaim? The Chovetz Chaim was around. The Chovetz Chaim only died in the 1930s as well. What did he say? He was around. People asked him. He was the God of Lador at the time. He'd already, he was already recognized worldwide. So the Chovetz Chaim has more of a nuanced approach. Listen to what he says. He says in Sefer Shem Olam. V'yesh ha'kodesh baruch hu noisem b'leiv malchei ha'umas sh'akiru kulam ha'achas v'yurtzu lahetzevim Yisrael. 
says, there's times where Hashem will make it that, uh, that the, the nations of the world will want to do good to Israel. Right, so he gave this mandate. He says, Right, I just to see the words a little better this way. to say that Hashem has many tools in his box. Don't limit Hakadosh Baruch Hu to only one way of providing Geula. Hakadosh Baruch Hu can provide Geula even when it seems like the tools he is using are a little, you know, strange. You know, Koresh, okay, you know, <laughs> you know, he, you know good man for the Persians and everything, you know, but like, you know, was he, was he really, you know, was he the, the kind of tool that we expected to Gula to come through? No, but that's the way he chose. Is Balfour the kind of, your, your upstanding citizen of, you know, good to go on the annals of Jewish history? Well, we wouldn't have chosen him ourselves, but he chose, Hashem has tools. One more, a little more, a little more a little, just a little more um, nuanced though in, in his response. In, his, in the Chavetz Chaim in the Torah, it's quoted by his, his son, Reb Lei. <coughs> It was a sort of the, the, the Shemaim from the heavens that Hashem was inspiring the next step of the Torah. He says, He talked about Hashem talks about establishing the rod of Yehuda, and this is going to be the Gula. But he also said, He's worried that those free, the fry Jews, the Jews who are not observant of Torah and Mitzvahs, would misuse this opportunity. He says, Look back in Jewish history, there were many good moments, and there were many windows of opportunity. Not all of them did we take. So what his concern was, is maybe, you know, Hashem, this is, there's no question, says the Chavetz Chaim, this is godly. But as, as godly as it is, the question is, are we going to take advantage of it? Or are we going to misappropriate that power that was given to us? Are we going to misappropriate this moment? So the Chavetz Chaim was tenaciously, he was obviously embracing. This is clearly a sign from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but will we use it? Will we misuse it? That's, a, that's just a, this hesitation, just the, the sign of nuance over here in, 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 his, in his work, in his legacy. Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonnenfeld, the Rav of Yerushalayim. Um, the founder of the Ha'ira Haredis, also a contemporary of Rav Kook, and we know the relationship, the fond relationship of Rav Kook and Rav Yosef Chaim Zonnenfeld actually themselves had together. Not so, not so simple. He had a, also much more of a nuance, depending on the different levels of biography that he had, more of a nuanced approach to, uh, to, this, uh, to this whole business. Um, as an example, here we go, let's, let's, we're not going to go through all of this over here. Let's, let's, let's skip this one over here. He says, so we need to re-establish, there's a practice in Judaism called Tikkun Chatzos, where Jews would get up at midnight and pray and cry for the destruction of the Beis Hamidah. She's brought in Shulchan Aruch in the first four Seifim. He says the following, it's going to be a very difficult time in the future. He wanted the land to be re-established. He felt that there was something dangerous that was going to happen because of this. 
And by the way, he, he was right to a certain degree about the danger that was about to, to, to ensue. The 1920 Arab riots, which started, leading to the 1929 massacre in Jerusalem and in Hebron, the issuing of the Peel Commission and the White Paper. There's a lot of blood that's going to be spilt in the next two decades, and following that, because of this ultimate movement. What some would say would be the price necessary to get there, what he would say is the danger of this next step. Um, so the, again, um, the, we're not going to go through all his works, but he, is, he, he, he understands that there's a great inspiration, there's a great opportunity at this moment in time, and as well, it comes with a great danger. It's not something we can take lightly. I, I want to just end with the, word, the, the words of the, of the Bornsteins. Who are the Bornsteins? And this is the, this we'll close with. There's the Avne Nezer and his son, the Shemishmuel. Who were the Avne Nezer? Who was the Shemishmuel? The Avne Nezer was a great Poisek. He was, in fact, the son-in-law of the Kotzka Rebbe, created his own dynasty in Sokotchov, became the first Sokotchov Rebbe. And he was renowned for his psakim across the board, across Europe, <coughs> which are recorded in his books called the Avnei Nezer. He was also famous for having been the author of a book called Egleital on Hilchos Shabbos. Say, if you're learning Hilchos Shabbos, it's a necessary um, in order to be able to learn Hilchos Shabbos. He had thousands of chassidim in Sokotrov, and he talks about the following. He is talking before the Balfour Declaration, as you can see. He lived till 1910. He did not see the Buffalo Declaration. He is dealing more on a halachic level with the Shalash Shvois, our rolling Golos. And he goes through an extremely long halachic analysis. So let's not, let's not uh, ignore that. This, there's pages and pages and pages that he spends talking about this. But the following is his conclusion. He says, Uladina, le halacha. He's not saying le machshava. He's saying le dina. Le halacha. Hitzrich le linyonenu, le mada kamalon, karova poiskim de kidsha le asid lavoi im oilan. So he says that if a person goes out to Eretz Israel, we know that the Kedusha remains in Israel. And there's today, he says, you can go up. He's talking in the, in the end of the 19th century. You can still get a Parnassa there, he says. Right? And this is now a mitzvah which is equally um, equal to all our mitzvahs together. But... It is circumscribed by our ability to be able to get Rishus permission to go there. We cannot break, we cannot break um, naval blockades. We can't force our way in with visas that are, not, um, that are not correct to get to the land. Why? Because that's part of the shadow of the Shavuos, right? That he still firmly believes that we're within that construct. Um, and of course, there are many Jews going to Israel. Make sure that your destination is going to be a place where you have Torah. Clear, right? Right, he says, And therefore, it is a great mitzvah to involve yourself diplomatically to allow people to go up. Because see what he's doing over here? It is a problem of Aliyah Bachoma to go up forcefully, militarily. But what can you do? Diplomatically is not a transgression of that. So do everything you can to allow the governments to allow you to go because then it's a mitzvah gedola that you're fulfilling, says Avnei Nezer in his, in, his, uh, in, his, in his letter, in his, in his tshuva. That's what he says. And he goes on to say, and he blesses the hands of those people who do that. Remarkable. So still within the shadow of the Shavuos, nonetheless, also saying we should do it. We should do every effort we can diplomatically within rules to be able to do that. Now, he didn't just speak. He put his money where his mouth was. He sent his son to go and start establishing a, um, a part of the Yishuv. He really believed in this firmly. Interestingly enough, his, his, um, the, his, uh, 
his son who followed in his footsteps, the Shem Shmuel, the grandson of the Kotzgrebe, the, the son of the Avnei Nezer, Rav Shmuel Borenstein, was actually a little more hesitant. He wasn't as gung-ho as, uh, as the Avnei Nezer, and after the Avnei Nezer's death, um, historically speaking, he slowed down on the, the Hislahavus, the excitement <coughs> about the Zionist prospect, until the Balfour Declaration. And this is why it's so fascinating. Meaning to say he was concerned about the social aspects of it from the, the, the type of crowd, the leadership, where this is going. But what happened? At the Balfour Declaration, this is as, as recorded in Abir Haroim, Avir Haroim, <coughs> it describes how, and he quotes in Ibn Ezra on Megillas Esther, it says that, Esther didn't come to the feast on the first. She didn't say, you know, Esther invites the king and Muhammad to a feast, and on the second, and then she invites them to a different feast. Why does she invite them to a different feast? She's because she saw that they were, the Jews were busy fasting, everybody was busy praying, and she hadn't seen any sign, anything that had happened yet, which showed her that the tide had changed in God's mind. She had to wait. She was waiting for a sign to see that the tide might change. Something happened. What had changed, by the way? What happened in the second Surah? And Haman's led in the streets. No, it's not just that what happened to the kings. Well, what, what happened was the, the, you know, the, 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 the poor Mordechai, who was slated for destruction, was led through the streets by Haman. Says Esther, can you deny the Hashkoch in that? Of course, now's the time. The second feast is the time to now take advantage, to move, to move forward. Says the Shemi Shmuel, it may have been that up till now, it may not have been the right thing, the right way, the right people, potentially. But you know what? When HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends you a Lord Balfour declaration, there's no two ways about it. This is it. This is HaKadosh Baruch Hu speaking to us. This is the Sarus Adela'ela. Meaning to say there's a more nuance over here. He saw both sides of the station. And nonetheless, he, he, I mean, he, he was able to, to, to pull through. This, this, is, this is how he ends. I want to just close the following, following remark, which I think is really, really pow a powerful way to, to conclude. You know, thinking about this. That, you know, Chaim Weitzman, when he, in his discussions with, um, with Harry Truman said to him, said to, to, to President Truman, and this was about later on the, the British mandate vote, he said, he said President Truman, this, obviously this, this interview which took so long to get, um, he said, President Truman, understand something. He says, if you ever decide to help the Jewish people in history, your name will be remembered forever. He says, Mr. Truman, you have a chance on the vote. That's what he said to him. Think about that for, for, for a second. Do we know any other Prime Minister of England pre-Churchill? I mean, Neville Chamberlain and Churchill. Do we know anybody? Do we care about anybody? Is it, is it important in, in our history? Think about, think about the accolades that, uh, that, 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 we, that we have over here in terms of, of an individual who finished his term in 1906 and integrally involved in Jewish history. Because you know what? It may be imperfect. It may not be the way we thought it would be. But when we see something like that, we see somebody doing something astonishingly different to what anybody would ever expect. Then we realize that Kodesh Baruch Hu is pulling the strings of history, and that's worth celebrating. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.